This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So why is a geneticist interested in something like language, something that we learn? And for, to answer this question, I'm going to hand over to uh, somebody who's much more eloquent than I am. And it's this fellow here, Charles Darwin. And about 150, almost 150 years ago, he uh, really summed up what's amazing and remarkable about language. He said, language is an art, like brewing or baking. It certainly is not a true instinct, for every language has to be learned. It differs widely from all ordinary arts, for man has an instinctive tendency to speak, as we see in the babble of our young children. While no child has an instinctive tendency to brew, bake, or write. So this really beautifully captures uh, something strange about language. And let's dig into this a little bit more. So <clears throat> by the time a child is only a few years of age, they've already assembled um, a vocabulary of thousands of words. They can uh, assemble these words into a potentially limitless number of meaningful sentences using grammatical rules. <clears throat> and these meaningful sentences can relate not only to the present, but also the past, the future, even abstract concepts. And then something that we take completely for granted, um, but is really extraordinary, is the ability that a child learns to take the thoughts that are sitting inside their heads and convert them into streams of sound via the most incredible feat of motor control, of the articulatory uh, functions moving uh, the muscles that control the face, the jaw, uh, the larynx uh, in this rapid kind of uh, dance uh, of, of motor function that converts thoughts into streams of sound. And then uh, another child's ears can do uh, an amazing thing, which is to kind of reverse engineer, decode this stream of sound, reverse engineer it, figure out what the original thought was, and come to their own conclusions. <laughs> All these different things that happen in the first few years of life, uh, a child can develop this suite of skills without needing any kind of formal tuition. So in a way that's, that seems very uh, almost magical. Um, and it's a complicated set of different things that go towards being able to become a proficient speech and language user. Uh, so how do we explain this? Um, and people have speculated that there might be something important uh, in our genes. Now importantly here, uh, this is actually a great example, a perfect example of uh, interaction between genes and environment. Um, and this is obvious to you as soon as you think about the fact that uh, a child who grows up in, uh, in, in the Netherlands, surrounded by Dutch speakers, will learn to speak Dutch. That same child growing up in Japan, surrounded by Japanese speakers, will learn to speak Japanese. And a child who is not sp uh, exposed to language will never become a, a lang language user. So uh, there's this uh, uh, incredible interaction between uh, genetics and environment. But there's something in the genes that seems to predispose us to soak up language from the environment around us in early life. Now, um, not every child, unfortunately, when exposed to language, becomes as proficient as this, uh, as this young lady here, for example. Um, so there are some kids who are exposed to language and have language-rich environments, but they fail to become uh, proficient language users. And in some cases, there might be a reason for this, like they have a physical problem, uh, they're deaf or, or, or they have some kind of uh, general cognitive problem. And in some cases, 
There are kids that fail to learn language, and it's a mystery, and we don't know why. Um, And it was noticed very early on when people started studying uh, these kind of uh, uh, disorders that these cases clustered in families. So if you have a relative with a problem with development of speech and language, that uh, dramatically increases your risk. Um, Now, this kind of familial clustering could, in fact, relate to something like shared environment, for example, in the family. Um, But we know from studies of twins that actually there's a very, very high heritability for these kind of speech and language disorders, unexplained speech and language disorders. We know this by uh, looking at the concordance in uh, the rates of language disorders in identical twins as compared to non-identical twins. There's been many, many studies that robustly show this. Um, And what I want to talk to you about uh, uh, in the remainder of 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 the talk is the idea that we should be able to go further than just saying, well, there's genes involved, to actually being able to say, can we take some people who have uh, speech and language problems and uh, figure out what the actual genes are, the particular genes that are important. One of the wonderful things about being able to find uh, the genes that are involved is that we can use these as kind of windows, molecular windows, into the intermediate biology. And this is my favourite slide that I always show, and everybody, I think, has a version of this slide if they work on genes and brain and behaviour. There's this huge gap between DNA and the outputs, the behavioural outputs that we're interested in. Uh, And we're not so naive naive to ignore that gap, but we think that we can use the knowledge of the genetics to actually fill in and understand each different level. So we can understand that many genes that we study uh, are important because they code for proteins, and the proteins kind of all work together as molecular and machinery in your cells to do all the functions of your cells. We know that... Um, genes and proteins are important for different properties of the way that neurons uh, uh, develop. So, for example, they might influence the proliferation of neurons in early development. They might uh, influence how neurons move to the, migrate to the final positions in the brain, how those neurons uh, differentiate and extend out kind of their axons to connect up and wire up with other neurons in the brain. And then we might want to understand how neural circuits actually work. One of the most fascinating things about the interaction between genes and neural circuitry is that your genes are important for the functions of your neural circuits, even in your adult brain, because they help you to learn. They help genes are actively working to strengthen and weaken the links, the synapses, the links between your different uh, brain cells uh, throughout life. Um, And of course, we have these complex assemblages of neural circuits Uh, built by a combination of genes and experience, and it's those in the brain that are doing these kind of complex behaviours. And the idea here is that if we can find uh, something at this end of the the spectrum, at the DNA level, um, and we know that it's linked at this other end to speech and language, we can use that as a tool for understanding all these different levels. And there's interactions and and relationships between the the levels. This is uh, a gross oversimplification, but it's a starting point for thinking about what I'm going to talk about. Uh, So I'm going to give you an example where we've been able to to identify a gene that's important in speech and language development. Uh, And the starting point for uh, this uh, study was this family here, the KE family. And it's a three-generation family, now a four-generation family. And in each of these generations, you can see these shaded individuals are affected with a severe speech and language disorder. And they're growing up together with these unaffected individuals who are non-shaded, who are growing up together with the kids who develop a severe problem. And the severe problem is 
that they have difficulties learning to make those coordinated uh, sequences of speech. Um, and they do actually uh, uh, become uh, speech users, but there's always a problem. And I'm going to now play you an example, hopefully if this works, from uh, one of the uh, adult members of the KE family from this second generation. And she's being uh, uh, asked by Kate Watkins, uh, a PhD student at the time. She now leads a group in, in, uh, in Oxford, but at the time she was a PhD student in London uh, with Farinavag Academ studying this family. And she asks the lady to repeat different words five times. And she's going to ask, uh, ask them to repeat the word catastrophe. So listen to this. Catastrophe. 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 So she, she's, she's having a great trouble repeating the word catastrophe. Um, that's not a comment on the political situation at the moment, but... Um, <laughs> I promised I wouldn't be political. but Anyway, um, so this uh, trait that she has is something that it's called childhood apraxia of speech. But actually, as you can hear, it persists into adulthood. And even despite uh, uh, speech th- some intensive speech therapy, people still suffer from these problems. Um, and the problem is that uh, they have problems uh, stringing together certain sequences of sound. Um, and uh, and this gets, the problems get worse as the utterances get longer and as they become more complex. And this is shown by, this is a study that Kate Watkins uh, carried out in the, on the KE family, where they're being asked to repeat uh, uh, either simple or complex nonsense words. Um, and uh, these are nonsense words like contrampanist and peplisteronk, uh, words that now I practice every day in front of the mirror, so I'm very good at them. <laughs> but these people have never encountered the words, and they try to repeat them back, and they have difficulty doing so. And what you can see on these graphs is... Uh, these are unaffected members of the KE family. These are affected members of the KE family. And this third line is actually adults with brokers and other kinds of aphasias, uh, damage, uh, brain damage that yields problems uh, with uh, uh, speech praxis. Um, and here, as you can see, the, uh, the material that gives them the most uh, difficulty is when they have to repeat these nonsense words that are really long and complex. Um, and it's not that they can't say certain sounds, it's that they have particular problems with stringing them together in the right way. Something to do with the way that the brain is program, programming sequences of mouth and face movements during speech. Now, they also have lots of other problems with all sorts of aspects of language. They have deficits not just in spoken language, but also if you ask them to write linguistic uh, items as well. There are impairments not just in expression, but also in reception of language. And there are tests of of, uh, grammar, comprehension, and production that they do worse on uh, than unaffected individuals. Uh, This is not a kind of general intellectual disability. They don't uh, um, all have a a kind of IQ that's in the uh, intellectual disability range. But this family is not the brightest family in the world, so there are some unaffected individuals in the family who have low nonverbal IQ, uh, and there are uh, affected individuals who have normal nonverbal IQ and uh, severe speech and language problems. So it doesn't seem like the speech and language, uh, that the uh, nonverbal problems that some of the family members uh, suffer from, it doesn't seem like they're uh, 
uh, a core feature of the disorder. And if you look at patterns of nonverbal and verbal cognition, different kinds of subtests, you find that they have a, a deficits that are much more severe in the verbal range, which is what you would expect for a speech and language disorder. So working in the lab of Tony Monaco in the late 1990s, uh, we started screening the DNA from, these families, from this family, and we pinpointed a linked region on chromosome 7. And this uh, was actually a different region from the region that you've just heard about in the Williams syndrome uh, talk. Eventually, we zoomed in and uh, spotted a, uh, a single tiny change, one uh, uh, letter of DNA, one base of DNA, which normally in every uh, unaffected person in this family, and in every one of you, I, I, I can guarantee, uh, was a G. Uh, in the affected members of the family, they have two copies of every gene. One copy had the G, one copy was normal, but one copy has an A instead of a G. Um, and this was private mutation that had occurred in the grandma of that family and then been passed on to half of the affected members, uh, and the unaffected members did not uh, uh, receive this variant. And this was in a gene called FOXP2. And we could already say something about what that gene was, um, it's a gene that regulates uh, other genes. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Um, and all these genes that, um, that uh, uh, are genes like FOXP2, they have something called a forkhead box domain. They make a protein uh, that has this special domain here that I'm showing you. And it consists of these three uh, helices here, one, two, and three, and these big loops here. And the KE family have this mutation that changes one of the amino acids in the protein that they build for FOXB2, and it's this amino acid here, and it stops the protein from doing its job properly. It stops the protein from binding to DNA. Since finding this uh, mutation in the KE family, we and others have found uh, a bunch of other different mutations in FOXP2 in different cases around the world. This just shows you a, a, a picture from a later study showing about eight or nine different mutations that have been found disturbing different letters of, um, of the FOXP2 gene. And in each case, they damage one copy of the FOXP2 gene but leave another copy of the FOXP2 gene intact. So uh, uh, these people have kind of a, an insufficient uh, amount of FOXP2 protein that they're making, and they have uh, speech and language problems uh, sometimes other problems in addition, but all, the kind of most common feature across all these patients is speech and language disorder. And we've been able to take the different mutations that disrupt FOXP2 and look at them in the lab. We can grow cells in the lab and, um, and label uh, FOXP2 in green. Here is the nucleus of cells, and here is normal FOXP2 being expressed in the nucleus of these cells, which is where it likes to be. And here are some examples of mutations where the protein can no longer get into the nucleus, and we do other, other assays that show that FOXP2 is not working properly in these cells. So the idea then is that you can use FOXP2 to study all these uh, intermediate uh, levels uh, from <coughs> DNA to speech and language, um, and I refer you to these papers to, to find out more about it. But I'm just going to give you a couple of examples, because I'm running out of time. Um, of the kinds of things that we've been studying with FOXP2. So FOXP2 is a regulatory gene that switches on and off other genes, and this is how it works. Uh, it gets transcribed into messenger RNA, um, and uh, this messenger RNA is used as a template to build a protein, also called FOXP2. Uh, this FOXP2 protein finds target genes, 
and it binds to the promoters, the regulatory regions at the front of each gene, and it could either activate them or it could repress them, it could silence them. And we think that a lot of the time what FOXP2 is doing is to silence these genes, but it can also act as an activator. And it seems to do this like a kind of genetic dimmer switch, if you like. It's not all or nothing. We can then have a look. Using this, we know that we have this gene, can we ask uh, what are the other elements of this FOXP2 network that it belongs to? So we might ask what are the uh, things that... Uh, bind to the FOXP2 gene to switch it on? What are the things, signaling processes that interact with FOXP2 to modulate its function? What are the other factors that bind to FOXP2? And what are the downstream targets that it's switching on and off? We've identified quite a few downstream targets, uh, and many people have been working on this over the years. And what's interesting is that many of the targets that FOXP2 regulates are known to be important for neurodevelopment because when they go wrong, they cause neurodevelopmental disorders like autism, uh, schizophrenia, uh, um, epilepsy, and so on. And we've identified pathways like sumulation that modulate the way that FOXP2 works in the cell, and also other proteins like TBR1 that interact with FOXP2 and that are also implicated in neurodevelopmental syndromes. Um, we, can, we can go further to ask what is the influence of FOXP2 on the neuronal properties. One of the neuronal properties that FOXP2 appears to influence is the outgrowth of neurites from cells. And these are the things that are will, uh, from neurons, and these are the things that will eventually uh, connect up, become axons and dendrites, and uh, connect up with other neurons. And when FOXP2 is lost, um, it can lead to shorter neurites with reduced branching. Now, you might ask then if FOXP2 is so important for things like the outgrowth of neurites, why? Don't we have a global, when we have a loss of FOXP2, why don't we have a global problem with the whole of our brains? And the reason for this is that FOXP2 is not actually switched on itself all over the brain. It's switched, off in, it's switched on in certain subsets of cells. Um, and so this is if I took your brain, which I promise I won't do, and I slice it in half, um, you can see this is a kind of cross-section. FOXP2 is expressed in the deepest layers of the cortex, uh, especially in motor regions, it's expressed in layer 6 and layer 5. It's also expressed in the basal ganglia, uh, uh, in the striatum, in, in the caudate putamen, the thalamus, and in the cerebellum, it's expressed in a very specific cell type called the Purkinje cells. And what a lot of these circuits do, the cortico-basal ganglia and cortico-cerebellar circuits, is they're important for you to do motor skill learning, to learn to make motor sequences. Um, and... Uh, since FOXP2 is not a new human gene, it's actually present in, uh, in all sorts of other organisms in, in, in evolutionary history, we can study what FOXP2 uh, does, say, by looking at in, an, in a mouse. And when we take a mouse, we can study the way that neurons, these neurons that express FOXP2, the ways they fire during motor skill learning. Um, and, uh, and we can thus kind of get insights into uh, uh, what's happening. And we found that in these different places in the striatum, also in, in Purkinje cells in the cerebellum, that the firing of the neurons during motor skill learning and motor skill tasks is different from uh, when FOXP2 is mutated from, uh, from unaffected uh, um, animals. So I'm going to finish there by just summing up. FOXP2 at the extremes, what does this tell us about uh, speech and language development? So heterozygous mutations in FOXP2 cause a rare severe speech and language disorder in humans. It's a regulatory gene, so its targets and its interactors 
give us entry points into neural pathways. It's not a gene for speech because, as I've told you, versions of FOXP2 are active in the brains of many different vertebrate species. The nice thing there is that we can actually study what FOXP2 does in these other places, uh, uh, in these other species. And by studying humans, mice, and even songbirds, which I didn't have time to talk about, uh, we can uncover the roles of the gene in these kind of circuits like corticobasal ganglia and cerebellar circuitry that are known to be important for <laughs> complex motor functions. And a curious question would be, we know that when FOXP2 is damaged, it impairs your speech motor skills. Uh, so it would be interesting to see whether at the other end of the spectrum, for example, in people who are really good at uh, beatboxing, uh, maybe we would be at, or rapping, maybe they have uh, interesting variants of FOXP2. So the last thing I'd like to say is that the fact that FOXP2 has been around for a long time uh, in evolutionary history and has been doing important things uh, in the brain means that whatever it's doing in speech and language in humans is not novel and de novo, but it's built on ancient stuff. Uh, so I think this suggests to us that our unique capacity for acquiring spoken language is built on systems that are evolutionarily ancient. Uh, and there I will stop. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.